Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. In a moment, you'll hear a terrific interview with Thomas Kuna, author of the recent book, Belonging in Genocide, Hitler's Community, 1918 to 1945. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to take just a moment to say thanks. In the past year, I've posted 16 interviews for the podcast. This wouldn't have been possible without the willingness of authors and editors to take time from their busy schedules to share their insights and research. Likewise, it wouldn't have been possible without the hard work of Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, who edits and posts the interviews, as well as constructing the website for the podcast. As the year ends, I wanted to express my appreciation to all of you who made and make the podcast possible. And I wanted to say thanks to those of you who listen as well. Without you, there would be no reason for the podcast to exist. I'm really excited about what I have planned for the show in the coming year. I've got interviews already recorded or scheduled with Bob Donier, Lassa Hirton, Irvin Staub, and several others. In addition, I'm starting a new occasional series where we look back at a seminal work in the field of genocide studies. We'll discuss that book with the author, as well as with a roundtable of experts who can share with us how that work influenced their own research, what we now know about the subject, and where research in that particular area is headed in the future. I think you'll like what we have planned. If you do, I hope you'll let us know what you found most interesting, and that you'll like us on Facebook. In the meantime, I hope you have a great New Year's season and that you'll be back to listen to the podcast in 2015. In just a moment, you'll hear my interview with Thomas Kuna. Skype was not as cooperative as I would have liked during the interview, and there's a low buzz present at times. The sound is not ideal, but it shouldn't be too disruptive, and Kuna's work and words are fascinating. So I hope you'll stay and listen. I think you'll be glad you did. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Thomas Kuhn, author of the splendid new book, Belonging in Genocide, Hitler's Community, 1918 to 1945, published by Yale University Press. In this book, Thomas presents us with a disturbing new understanding of the roots and impact of Nazi crimes before and during the Second World War. The allegiance of many Germans to the Nazi regime stemmed from the powerful sense of community the party and the government crafted. This community satisfied a long-felt need emerging from the perceived anonymity of modern society, but the Nazis intentionally cultivated it, cultivated a sense of community by creating a variety of organizations and experiences designed to heighten a feeling of belonging. And they cemented this community by bonding its members together through the experience of committing crimes. It's a fascinating book with a fascinating thesis, and one we'll get to explore at length in the next 45 minutes. So with that, Thomas, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Kelly, for inviting me to do this. Uh, I'm delighted uh, about this chance, and uh, I very much look forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks. Why don't we get started just by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be interested in studying the Holocaust. Well, um, I um, was born and raised and actually got my academic training in Germany. 
And uh, only 11 years ago, I moved to America <coughs> uh, for primary professional reasons, uh, because I, mainly because I just like the, the American academia much better. And that has worked out uh, very well for me. Um, so, as often people ask me, why do we do the Holocaust? Why do you research the Holocaust? Uh, are there any, any uh, links in your family or so? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, no, not really. That is not really the reason why <laughs> I choose that topic. Uh, my parents were both born in 1925. My mother was Catholic and my father Protestant. And they, I mean, would, you know, that means they were... Uh, my father was drafted to the Wehrmacht, to the, to the army in 1943, so, uh, but they were not really adults when uh, adults that could have any impact in the Third Reich. Uh, and the same is basically in principle true for my grandparents. They, are all, they all were pretty ordinary Germans, uh, not, none of them Nazi, but none of them any heroes of the resistance against the Nazi regime either. So, I mean, my parents and their parents kind of muddled through and adjusted, and, you know, that is what millions of other Germans did as well. So that is uh, the private background, but um, the professional background is that I uh, got in the mid-1990s interested in, um, not initially not so much the Holocaust, but the issues uh, as a scholar, as a historian of uh, masculinities, male bonding, and how that changed over the 20th century. Um, it is a, something that everyone or many people know that Germany was a very militarist, militaristic country uh, around 1900. <clears throat> uh, the soldier, the officer, was you know the epitome of a man, what what a man represents, and uh, adored by huge parts of the society, the German society at that time. And 100 years later now, Germany is well known all over the world as, an, as a pretty pacifist country. One mm -hmm. uh, shies away from all kinds of military engagements uh, for many reasons, of course. But, I mean, there is a, a strong pacifist sentiment. And the soldier today no longer, uh, no longer attracts any kind of adoration uh, of uh, any significant part of the society. So there's a fundamental change over the course of the 20th century, and that is uh, a, 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 a typical problem for a historian. As historians, mm -hmm. we want to, to, to understand change, and uh, that is what brought me to that topic. I started researching uh, patterns of male bonding masculinity in the Third Reich, mm -hmm. especially among ordinary soldiers, and uh, that topic could not be explored without uh, relating to the Holocaust, into which uh, not only the German elite at that time, but many ordinary Germans were involved as well. So how did you come to write this book? Uh, this book is a, the second book uh, that came out of a larger research project this project on masculinities in the Second World War, the Third Reich, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, in the mid-1990s, I started interviewing former Wehrmacht soldiers in Germany, who mm -hmm. at that time were not only alive still, but also, you know, um, in, in a, often in a good uh, intellectual and physical shape, so they could be interviewed at that time. 
Um, <coughs> and that this project, and I started reading letters, private letters I wrote during the war to understand what what made them uh, sticking to the army, what made them um, you know, fighting and so on. And um, from that project, um, a German book evolved uh, that was titled Comradeship, that, or the German equivalent to the English word, mm-hmm. uh, Comradeship, and this book explored what Comradeship, the term, the concept of Comradeship, meant for German soldiers um, during the 20th century. The book covers basically uh, the the entire 20th century and how the term changed and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I moved to America and uh, thought, well, I have spent so much time on this German project, German <laughs> book. I think it would be worth to uh, write another book, now mm-hmm. English, on it. Uh, that focuses the English book about which we are talking now, belonging in genocide, uh, does not cover the entire 20th century, but... Um, basically the Nazi period with the mm-hmm. first chapter on the time before, but it's, it's the focus is indeed the Nazi period and especially the, the time of the Second World War, 1939, the time of the Holocaust. And um, I um, wanted to, to explore with, in this book uh, why Germans, why, why, there, why there was never any kind of uh, serious resistance on a larger scale uh, by Germans against the Nazi regime, while there was no even, uh, even I mean, minor uh, solidarity with the Jews during the during the Holocaust on any kind of social level. I mean, there was individual resistance and individual solidarity and so on. That is what we know, and that's that is uh, very important. But there was never any kind of uh, solidarity on a of groups with the Jews or something. And I wanted to understand why that why that was so. That is what the book wants to explore. I'm I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, and and just to take a brief kind of uh, a parenthetical moment, I guess, before we deal with the book specifically, because because I heard you talk about yourself as a history of as a historian of gender or a historian of masculinity and historian of Germany, uh, and yet your your title. In some sense, is this, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. I apologize, but Strassler, a Strassler professor of Holocaust history. And so I'm, I, I wonder if you could say something a little bit about what kind of distinctive sensibilities and approaches that you can bring to the study of the Holocaust and genocide from that perspective or from that background as somebody who comes from a, a different part of the historical arena. I would not consider that a different part of the historical mm. arena. I mean, uh-huh. it's indeed true that in the mid-1990s, when I started with this, uh, with these, when, you know, when I start, when these questions came up uh, to me and when I started to work on them as a historian in a scholarly fashion, then I started out as a gender historian, as you may call it, or I would rather say as a historian of masculinities. Uh-huh. Um, which is part of gender uh, study, by mm-hmm. no means. Mm-hmm. It comes with this focus. And um, that is where I started. Uh, but um, I have to say, I, as a historian, I consider myself not distinctively as a gender historian and never have done so. I yeah. consider myself as a cultural historian. I want to understand mm-hmm. what, you know, in history, 
how uh, symbolic orders, morals, uh, you know, knowledge, and so on, symbolic rituals of people. How that is, uh, how, how you know, how how people make sense of their world, yeah, of their, yeah. their lives, and so on. That is a question mm -hmm. for, of a cultural historian, and that is my question. How did people in the Third Reich make sense of what happened, mm -hmm. what they did by themselves, and so on? Uh, and I, I'm so as a cultural historian, I uh, think you still have to. The cultural system, culture, culture as a term, okay, mm -hmm. it's, it's a bad concept. That is, um, that does not mean high culture, what we might call sure. high culture, art or you know, music or so, but it relates to what ordinary people felt, thought, and did, and why they did it, why they felt that way, and so on. These things, yeah, that is what I mm -hmm. consider as cultural history. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that is that, uh, how people feel and feel about gender orders, masculinity and femininity, or what makes a real man, what makes a woman, and these things, uh, that is part of culture, obviously. Mm -hmm. yeah, that is, so that is my, my focus. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, a, that's a really nice explanation. I was, I was in graduate school in the late 80s and 90s when cultural history really took off, and I think that's a really nice explanation of, of, of what cultural history does. So let's turn to the book. Um, you craft your narrative around a German longing for community. So maybe we could just start briefly by asking you to talk about where this longing emerges from, where it started or, or, what, or what social or cultural or economic developments led to its becoming important in German society. Well, I think there are two, two things Uh, one should address. One is not a specific German thing, mm -hmm. but rather something that you can observe in all modern societies, Western societies, and even beyond. Okay, um, that is around 1800 or in the 18th century. Uh, the so-called old regimes, societies that were clearly divided into certain states or corporations where everyone had his or her place and would not leave it for their entire life. Mm -hmm. This static society uh, fell apart and it was, as I say, it was torpedoed by liberals and uh, uh, political groups that no longer wanted to live that way. It was also undermined by the rising capitalism and industrial society and so on. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, what happened was around 1800, and then this is a long-term process um, went on in the 19th century that individuals were set free, who no longer be, were born into a certain a part of the society, given part of the society, and so, yeah, the state or something or corporation like aristocracy or peasantry or uh, clergy or something like that. Uh, so the individuals had to choose their place in their societies. And that is something, of course, we are with this panel today. That's what we are do all the time, and we are used to it. And probably mm -hmm. only very few of us would, would uh, like to renounce of that freedom. But as we all so know, probably most of us, it's sometimes not only a pleasure. Uh, it puts quite a lot of pressure on you. You have to make choices, and eventually you are responsible for the choices you make mm -hmm. and you are Uh, you are wholly uh, uh, responsible for these choices one way or another. So that is, uh, it's an ambivalent process. Mm -hmm. uh, 
what sociologists call the individualization of societies, which again runs over 200, the last 200, 250 years or so. Mm-hmm. Around 1900, about 1900, in many parts of the Western societies, not only in Germany, also in England, in France, in America, and so on, um, people, and ordinary people, uh, felt more and more confused about this or started reflecting on it. Do you want that? What, what is the price you pay for that? And so on. What are the, neg- the, the, the downsides of this process? And they started thinking about um, ways to reconstruct or reestablish or reassure community, a mm-hmm. community, a place, a, a social place, social setting that gives you a sense of belonging so that you know where you, where you belong. And, so. and uh, so that is something that you can observe in, in many Western societies. In Germany, this process um, was uh, came to, together uh, was linked to a more political issue, and that was um, that Germans uh, thought and wondered about the quality of their nation. <clears throat> nation building is another phenomenon that uh, mm-hmm. um, runs throughout the entire modernity and shaped especially the 19th century, um, and there were. You have nations like France or, or England or America, in a way, the U.S., uh, that uh, found their place as a nation earlier and easier than other parts of the world. And Germany is among those, um, those nations which had more problems finding, uh, defining themselves as, uh, or itself as a nation because uh, it needed more time and even if after the German nation, the so-called German Empire, was founded formally, technically, in 1871. Uh, there were many parts of this country that seemed to drift away or not belong. Uh, apart from that, there was a serious class struggle, uh, furthermore, class struggle overlapping with, uh, with religious struggle, denominational struggle, and so on and so forth, regional gaps. Yes. So the nation was established, but um, not uh, did not feel as such. That is the point. Did not feel as such, and this uh, deficit was um, felt by many Germans, also of course by intellectuals, sociologists, and so on, politicians. And uh, the concept to or the, the prescription um, politicians and demagogues and so on invented was uh, they would say we have to. Uh, recreate, reconstruct, improve our nation in a way that everyone, every German, really feels has a sense of Germanness. <clears throat> and they call that not nation, but Volksgemeinschaft, people's mm-hmm. community. Yeah? In this people's community, everyone should feel, every member of the nation should feel like in a grand, in a great family, flow, you know, uh, that would, and so on. And that, of course, did not work out, out easily because, in principle, it conflicts or contradicts uh, the structure of a modern society where you find your place, uh, where you have your place uh, as a member of a class or mm-hmm. a denomination, a religious group, or something like that. Yeah? So that, mm-hmm. is, that was a problem. <clears throat> and um, now, uh, a crucial experience for Germans, as for all other uh, countries, was the experience of the First World War, 
uh, the first world war initially was welcomed at least by the by the educated classes in germany uh, as a, as a, a chance to overcome this um, uh, fragmentation or segmentation of this of their own nation uh, for a moment it seemed as if all germans were on the same page on the same page all would uh, feel as germans being uh, in a situation where they have to defend their country and all would you know, stick together against these enemies from outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that proved to be an illusion soon after Germans in Germany, just as in other countries, but in particular in Germany, the old class gaps, socialists or blue-collar workers versus middle classes and so on, uh, became more visible and powerful than they had been ever before. And that is also the reason why at the end of the war there was a revolution in Germany which swept away the monarchy. Uh, and so these class gaps became stronger and stronger. Uh, but um, it seemed to many Germans as if this idea of a harmonious nation overcoming class gaps, religious uh, conflicts, and so on and so forth, had been realized in the trenches in small soldierly units of the first, uh, during the First World War. Uh, I mean, in a certain way, that was not entirely wrong. In many regards, it was uh, first an illusion and then also simply a propaganda lie, a lie that um, uh, just silenced down the still existing class and other conflicts in these trenches among soldiers and so on. But nevertheless, I mean, in the 1920s, after the war, powerful movement in Germany uh, developed the idea that we could, the Germans could actually make that old idea of a Volksgemeinschaft, a harmonious nation, real by uh, remodeling the German, the anti-German society according to this model of the trench communities, the soldierly outlets, the outfits of the, 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 the units, the small units, battle uh, 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 units, fighting units of the soldiers, uh, in which uh, allegedly there was no class conflict and no other uh, conflicts inside them. I mean, of course, there was a, with the enemy, but, uh, you know, beyond the trenches and so on. Um, but, I mean, as a strong movement, militarist, nationalist movement, not by no means only the Nazis, uh, would say, uh, in a way, it was good that we did have this enemy, uh, on, yeah, the soldier enemy, the, the enemy, the French or the British, uh, because thanks to the enemy in the trenches as soldiers, we felt as the perfect nation that uh, uh, it gave us a sense of belonging we would not have experienced otherwise. That is a basic idea of that is what happened uh, in the 1920s. And then the Nazis um, uh, uh, took over in a way. Mm-hmm. They uh, appropriated that idea and developed it further and further. So, so let me, yeah. So, so you talk about this, this culture that emerges in Weimar that the Nazis are going to kind of move forward from as one that prioritizes shame over guilt. Can, can you say what you mean by that? Well, that is a, a distinction uh, which I introduced in my book, uh, which uh, indeed may be a little confusing. 
what I mean, what I mean by that is, um, that it's basically that I um, draw uh, or that I learn from anthropologists and also psychologists, mm-hmm. uh, especially anthropologists who uh, there was a famous anthropologist uh, in the mid 20th century, Ruth Benedict, uh, mm-hmm. who um, who showed in a book published right after the Second World War that, uh, as she thought, the Japanese society followed a completely different moral system than the American society. And uh, she called this, this, this opposition uh, shame culture or the skilled culture. Shame culture means that she applied that to the Japanese society that uh, mm-hmm. people don't follow, as in the Western societies, an inner voice or, you know, you as Westerners or you know, in our society, the highest moral, moral authority is, I mean, God or your super ego, if you don't believe in mm-hmm. God, or your conscious, mm-hmm. your, your um, things like that. Okay, it's a, it's a, if you have to make moral decisions, then you do it with yourself. Always. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, and if you, uh, if you do the wrong thing, if you, I mean, that's... Uh, it's a very bad case if you murder someone, kills someone, mm-hmm. and it is not revealed, okay? That's, uh, nobody knows about it. You keep it as a secret. You are not caught. Yeah? Then you, mm-hmm. most people, un- unless they are you know, pathologic, uh, still feel guilty. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bad conscience, pangs of conscience, and so on and so forth. So that is uh, guilt culture. Yeah? That is what the, the Western model, according to Ruth Benedict. And she said uh, that East Asian societies, especially the Japanese society, as she uh, examined it, uh, would follow, uh, would not put so much weight on this inner voice, but rather uh, make moral decisions according to what other people would think about them. So the case from outside, yeah, whether you as an individual would be shamed, that's shame culture, by doing this or that, by doing wrong, yeah. Um, that this distinction of Ruth Benedict is probably a, a problematic because you know it, it, it creates a, a, a dichotomy which in reality does not exist. I mean, even in our current societies, uh, you know, you feel ashamed if you do wrong, and so on. So there is a mixture of shame and guilt in all societies, one way or another. But there, there may be different ratios. And what I uh, wanted to, to say is uh, in this book, and uh, I basically still think is, is true, uh, that uh, the Nazis managed to, to, uh, to, um, to inflate the significance of shame and tried to train lear- Germans in unlearning guilt, to put mm-hmm. it in a somewhat um, simplified way. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The Nazis never succeeded completely with that program. Uh, mm-hmm. That would not have been hope, uh, possible. You cannot unlearn the morality, the ethical system you grow, grow up with, you know, within a few years or so. That is simply not possible. And the Nazis knew that, but they, they wanted Germans to, to, um, to ignore or, you know, marginalize as uh, feelings of guilt they might have that people usually have when they murder other people mm-hmm. or when mm-hmm. they mistreat other people. For instance, their Germans, Jewish fellow citizens. Yeah? So from 1933 on, the Nazis wanted Germans to, to harass them 
to boycott them, to exclude them, uh, and so on and so forth. Germans did not fully follow that line easily, um, but the Nazis this denounced uh, feelings of pity with weak persons and so on. They said, you, you Germans, you should not have, you should not uh, feel pity or express pity for people who are not worth. That may be Jews or people with um, inherited uh, illnesses, uh, which are subject, subject to the so-called euthanasia or Roma and Sinti or homosexuals and so on. These are all these peoples. These people, the Nazis would say, they do not deserve your empathy, your uh, your mercy, your pity. So they want the Germans to unlearn this culture and rather to switch to a, as I or as scholars, okay, call it, they call it a shame culture. Mm-hmm. The Nazis did not call that shame culture. Yeah? The term is a scholarly term, and that is that needs to be uh, that mm-hmm. needs to be kept in mind. It's a scholarly term. It is not a contemporary term. Mm-hmm. And and you just so so to kind of follow on to that and, and, and to talk a little bit about how the Nazis understood the ideal German uh, community they were trying to create. You you talk about it as a, as, a, as a kind of ethical community, a distinctive understanding of ethics, of how Germans should treat each other and, uh, and other people. Uh, it reminded me of the title of Claudia Kunz's book a few years back, The Nazi Conscience. Um, so can you, you talk a little bit about what this ethic they were trying to create consisted of? Yeah, that is a very important question, and that is uh, kind of the, the, uh, that is closely related to what I tried to explain just before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. Nazis did not simply want Germans to unlearn or ignore morals. I mean, the goal was not that Germans would uh, renounce of any kind of morality of the sense of what is good and what is evil. That is not what the Nazis wanted, and that would be uh, also very uh, stupid, because I think uh, if you look into all all kinds of societies over the world and throughout the history, there there is no society that can live without a sense of morality, what is good and Mm -hmm. what is evil. The question is, how do you define that? What is good? Yeah. What is evil? And, you know, we may be inclined as Westerners to just um, generalize or universalize our moralities. Uh, yeah, but that is problematic for a historian. And I wanted to show that the Nazis did introduce a moral system and ethics that um, was different than this mm-hmm. culture, but yet would uh, Germans allow to to feel good even if they murdered Jews or mm-hmm. other discriminated people. And the way that worked was that the Nazis would say, the old, what is, there is no universal goodness. That is the crucial point. There is only, mm-hmm. uh, the only thing that is, can be considered as good is what serves or helps our nation, the first commander. And this nation was a racially cleansed nation. It was a nation without Jews, without um, Roma and Gypsy, without Slavs, and so on and so forth. A racially uh, cleansed a nation consisting only of um, uh, you know, so-called Aryans, of Aryans. Mm-hmm. Only what is good 
what is what serves, what helps our um, nation, the Volksgemeinschaft, to uh, what helps our nation is morally good. What damages it is not good. It is evil. That is a new moral system the Nazis invented uh, and tried to implement into German mindsets. Mm -hmm. um, to a certain degree that that they succeeded with that, but it has to be said that the German society before 1933, the Nazis came into power, and throughout the Nazi uh, period, the Third Reich, I mean, they did remain an ideologically diverse society. The Nazis did not succeed in, 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 um, in eradicating uh, ideologies and um, belief systems and so on that uh, related back to Christian traditions or liberal traditions and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the, this new moral system, you might call it a racist morality or a particularistic morality, this gained some popularity in Nazi Germany uh, and it, it was powerful, but it never um, managed to, to uh, conquer all German minds. Mm -hmm. how, how does gender play into that, that Nazi ethic? Uh, that is a very interesting uh, question. And um, well, it has to be said that um, the, you know, there is a not specific Nazi idea about what manliness is, especially mm -hmm. in the first half of the 20th century. Maybe today we think, think differently about it, but say in America, in America, and you know, in many Western societies, manliness, you know, translates into strengths, physical strengths, mm -hmm. authority, power, domination, and things like that. Uh, these qualities are um, relatively well, um, if not relatively well represented, uh, by soldiers. So, uh, and so it was in the Nazi society. The, the soldier was the epitome of uh, a true man uh, in that the soldier was able to represent power in various uh, ways, including uh, the power to kill uh, other uh, mm -hmm. people, usually only enemy soldiers, combatants, people who are armed. That is a, that is a consensus in all Western societies still uh, today. And the, the Nazis, um, the Nazis uh, said, well, true masculinity, I mean, they didn't say it literally the way I now phrase it, that's my way of phrasing, but that's the message they, they send. Uh, to, to be a real man, you do not have to be only tough enough to run into the battle and kill um, enemy soldiers and risk your own life by doing so on behalf of mm -hmm. your country. You also have to be able to overcome these old moral systems, you know, the feelings of uh, senses of guilt toward this, uh, toward people who no longer carry weapons, POWs or civilians. Uh, yeah, murdering a civilian is, I mean, is usually not considered as a manly act. But the Nazis said, if you do that, uh, then you overcome this old morality of guilt and so on, which we don't appreciate. And then, if you, that is a real, uh, a real accomplishment, 
then you are a real man. So that is one part of the mm -hmm. of how uh, gender ideas about gender and um, masculinity uh, did gain a new momentum in the Nazi society. Mm -hmm. Another aspect is uh, that includes also uh, includes women. That's mm -hmm. very important. That the um, you know in traditional societies, societies of the 19th century, uh, let's say, especially in European societies. Um, where in European societies in the 19th century, where racial conflicts do not have, they did not have the same significance as, say, in America in the 19th century. Uh, you could say that um, class, you know, societies are divided. Yeah? Gender plays a role. Gender is a category of difference, a very powerful category of difference in that it robbed uh, women of all political rights in the 19th century. Women in, in European societies did not have any political rights. They were, in terms of political power, completely marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so they were powerless in political terms. They did, did get in Germany these rights in 1918, but um, they lost, say, they again in 1933 when the Nazis came into power. So what I want to say by that is that in, in the pre-Nazi European societies, especially in the German society, Gender can be considered as the most powerful category of social uh, difference. Yeah, that decides where you are on the ladder of political and the political hierarchy where you stand. Class is another category of social difference that also matters. But race is in in Germany was I mean, there, also there was anti-Semitism in the 19th century and in the 1920s. But I mean, the Jews were politically. Um, Formally, at least, um, equal to Germans in more, almost all parts of the society and um, government and so on, not in all. Uh, but race was not the most important category of social difference. That's mm -hmm. And now the Nazis came and said, all Jews are no longer uh, citizens, and that is what the Nuremberg Law said in 1935. Uh, and not only this, uh, they'll, they'll be killed. Yeah? They have to go. The Jews have to go. So that is a That means that the entire system, the, the social hierarchies uh, yeah, in the German society changed fundamentally. Now it was no longer gender that was the most uh, distinctive category uh, of power, but it was race. Mm -hmm. What that means in practice is that any, any German woman, even the poorest one, I mean, in terms of wealth and so on, uh, from one moment to the next, was uh, positioned higher on the, uh, political, in the political hierarchy than any Jew, even the richest Jewish man. So that was an uplift to all so-called Aryan German women, uh, an empowerment of German women, which, you know, millions of German women did experience that certainly in very different ways. But nevertheless... Uh, many German women, so-called Aryan women, always um, did experience this type of empowerment and appreciated it. That is also something, another aspect uh, where the Nazis changed the gender order, mm -hmm. of, yeah, changed the gender order, and they did it um, in order to, um, to, to, to unite the so-called Aryan nation, the Volksgemeinschaft, to make all Aryan, always Aryan 
I mean, as opposed to Jewish Germans, Bulgarian Germans feel uh, united uh, and to, to provide them with a sense of belonging to this first dimension. Mm -hmm. So it's always what you, what, you, what you can see wherever you look at the, at the strategies of the Nazis. It is a, a very sophisticated and a very sophisticated and wide-reaching system uh, of establishing inclusion, sense of belonging, through exclusion, housing mm -hmm. uh, Jews and other uh, people. Inclusion and exclusion. That is so, the, 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 the principle of the Nazis. So let me piggyback on that. And, and so I've got kind of two questions in mind. And I'll start by the issue of inclusion and exclusion. One of the things you say in your book is that the this community that the Nazis envisioned on a national scale, but also on a very limited scale of the squad or the platoon of the neighborhood, depended on exactly as you say, having an outsider in that in racial terms, that outsider might be the Jewish or the Roma or the Sinti, but, but on a local scale, that meant somebody who was not tough enough or not manly enough or, or whatever particular kind of uh, quality that was espoused. How do, how does that work? Could you say something about how that works on a, on, on a, on a local or on a limited scale that the outsider helps constitute the community? Yeah, that is uh, also a very interesting phenomenon. Um, the truth is that not all, I mean, that there was a hierarchy between, say, strong men or what the Nazis considered strong men um, and lots of strong men. You know, you have that in the military or even beyond the military in, you know, youth groups or maybe even in a, in a company. You know, there are the so-called weaklings, uh, and the, the bullies, okay, or the, the alpha males or something like that. That's not a specific Nazi uh, thing. Um, but um, now you might imagine that um, weaklings, so-called weaklings, okay, what we call weaklings, um, or what the Nazis may have called weaklings, uh, that they would have been excluded or ousted as well, even if they had been uh, Aryans, yeah? Uh, to a certain degree that happened, but the mechanism is it, is that applied was a little more complicated um, in that the Nazis could not exclude uh, unlimited numbers of people because they needed soldiers, yeah? as many soldiers as possible, and be it as cannon fodder. <clears throat> they needed uh, soldiers. So uh, these weaker parts of the male society or of the society at all were not simply excluded as so-called non-Aryans or in so-called inferior uh, peoples like uh, the Jews, as they saw, were seen by the Nazis. These, let's call them, uh, to simplify it, uh, Aryan weaklings, they were kept within the group. They were included, but on a lower level. Uh, they were mocked at. Well, that's the same what you can observe in the military still today, or even, as I said, even in other, uh, you know, even on, on, on uh, well, in, in schools or whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, they were not excluded, not certainly not killed, only in very few exceptional cases. They were left. They were accepted as part of the group, 
as long as they accept it by themselves or themselves uh, to be the vegan. Mm -hmm. Why was that so? Well, uh, this system that uh, you have, you know, men of men of different degrees of manliness within one given group, a platoon or so, or you know, an SS mobile killing unit or so. Uh, that helps, that is actually quite pleasant uh, for the alpha males, because the alpha males can consider themselves only as alpha males, as uh, the top uh, guys, uh, if they have the contrast, the weakness. Yeah, that is uh, this system, that is something you can observe on in, 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 in schools or in the military and so on, so it is not a specific Nazi thing. The way it worked out in the Nazi society, especially in the perpetrator groups of the Nazis, the, the, those, those units, uh, smaller units, platoons that um, were in charge with killing civilians, Jews and other civilians, mm -hmm. the way this uh, principle worked out in these groups is that um, sometimes, um, for instance, um, uh, police units who uh, were ordered to murder a certain group of Jews. Now, that is what happened. These police units included not only dedicated SS men, but also ordinary Germans who had not necessarily volunteered for their job. And then did face serious moral problems uh, carrying out uh, the order. It is interesting to see that the Nazis never punished ordinary Germans, police officers, SS men, ordinary soldiers who would refuse to carry out an order to kill civilians. There is not a single case um, known that such a person would uh, be court-martialed or you know, sent to prison or something like that. But what happened was that he was considered a weakling. Yeah? One mm -hmm. does not match um, uh, the, the Nazi uh, ideas about what is good and what is evil, uh, the Nazi morality, no pity, and so on. Uh, these people were considered as weakling, mocked up, and so on in the police units. And I have to mention these op units operated thousands of miles away from their hometowns in Poland or Ukraine or somewhere. Uh, they were mocked at it. They had a difficult life there. Um, but they were not, they were not killed and they were not, um, they were not, often not sent home unless they asked for that. But, uh, they remained included into, in these groups uh, as long as they accepted their inferior position, they, their position or their label as, as weakling, because as, if they did so, they helped the alpha males and the uh, fanatical Nazis to, uh, to, to, um, to play their, role, their roles as fanatical Nazis and as alpha males, if that makes sense. So, so the other the other way I want to piggyback on that idea of inside and outsiders is that what I think find really interesting I, uh, among the many things I find really interesting about this book is this uh, the the argument you make that that crime was not simply a natural outflow of the perception of the outsiders, but was necessary to actually constitute a group for the insiders. Can you can you talk about that? Why was crime a, a, a requirement of, of the Nazi ethic? Yeah, that relates back to this moral 
dichotomy or the, the contrast between guilt and shame culture. And what I try to say is, as you may remember, that um, these two moral systems uh, can be distinguished ideally, yeah, typically, but um, in fact, in, if you look at in individuals in the Nazi society, the Germans operating in the Nazi society and operating, maybe working as soldiers and so on, then you would always find that they are that individuals um, um, that in individuals these two systems um, are present uh, are still present. So it's uh, not that you can abolish one or just forget about one side, uh, and that is a conflict. So. So people who experience that conflict know that um, that uh, killing civilians, for instance, is, is on the one hand, the Nazis would say it is good, but the, of the individuals who do it know it's bad. Yeah? So there is an inner conflict. Um, you might expect, okay, people then run away or they get uh, inactive. They, don't, they no longer operate. Yeah? They no longer function. They are mm -hmm. kind of... Um, uh, emotionally or morally killed by that uh, conflict. Uh, that did happen in some cases, but um, what happened more often on a large-scale basis is that Germans developed a sense of bad conscience. Mm -hmm. I mean, on, on various, on different levels, it's, it has to be said, it would be wrong to assume that all or millions of Germans actually killed civilians or pulled the trigger when it came to murder Jews or opened the gas chambers and so on. Reasonable estimates of, of the actual killers among Germans uh, at that time uh, amount to a number of, say, 200,000 or so. so. That is, in principle, a small minority, um, <laughs> given um, dozens of millions of adult Germans, uh, or even if you compare to 17 million uh, drafted German soldiers, it's a very small minority. Um, uh, so we have to look at what what is about the rest of the Germans yeah, who did not actively kill and um, well and with these Germans <coughs> um, my, the argument of my book is that um, many of them it's not possible for historians exactly to say which percentage of Germans did what and knew about the Holocaust and so on but reading many different diverse sources Letters and so on and so forth um, leads to the to the result to the argument that Germans who wanted to know knew about parts of the Holocaust, parts of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. mostly the mass shootings in the East. Uh, you know these uh, the mobile killing units, also in conjunction with local collaborators, killed about one half, one and a half million Jews. Uh, in the East directly by shooting uh, uh, them. Uh, more were killed in the death camps, as we know. Uh, and the knowledge about the death camps was not widespread in German, in, in Germany and among Germans. That was, uh, the Nazis managed to keep that as a secret. Um, but the killings, the mass shootings in the East were widely known in the German society, even at home and so on and so forth. Uh, so, those Germans who wanted to know and who did not just look the other way and um, you know close their eyes or their ears or whatever, those Germans who wanted to know knew about the fact that in the name of the German nation, in the name of the German nation, a huge crime, a mass crime, uh, uh, had 
it had been uh, committed, perpetrated uh, during the Second World War against the Jews and other parts, but primarily against mm-hmm. the Jews. Uh, so this knowledge was present in, in Germany um, from 1941 on through the end of the war and beyond, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the point here is that you might say, okay, the Germans who did not actually who did not pull the trigger or were not part of the concentration camp guards or something, they might not have felt guilty about it. But that is not true. The point hmm. is that they knew that they knew that this crime uh, was committed in the German name, and that the rest of the world would look at Germany as the collective perpetrator of these crimes. And we have proof, evidence of that in letters or diaries of, of more sensitive Germans that show exactly this, yeah, that the ordinary Germans who even resisted the Nazis or, or the, despised the Nazis, uh, even more despised um, the, the SS and the, the misdeeds of the SS, even these Germans uh, knew, well, I am... I, I am somehow part of that society who did hmm. this. And so what, what that shows you is that um, you, during the last four years of the Second World War, the Nazi uh, Third Reich, Germans kind of developed a very, very odd, very strange sense, sense of national belonging, national identity, the, a nation uh, as a criminal brotherhood, yeah. Uh, a criminal brotherhood uh, that um, was defined uh, by a mass crime, by having committed a mass crime. Mm-hmm. That is a mechanism yeah, that you, uh, which you can observe uh, if you look into the mindsets of ordinary Germans at that time. Even women, are in some cases, teenagers, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the point is that mm-hmm. this com- grand community uh, the national community based on uh, the, the national community and the criminal brotherhood included also those Germans who uh, kept a certain distance to the Nazis and the perpetration of the Holocaust. So why don't, or what role does that play in uh, motivating the Germans to fight as long as they did? Well, they had Thanks of conscience. That is what we can. There's plenty of evidence uh, on hmm. that. If you, if one reads uh, private letters of soldiers' diaries and so on, uh, from about 1943 on, after the disaster in Stalingrad, you know, the Wehrmacht lost uh, 600,000 soldiers in the battle of for Stalingrad in early 1943. That was a sensational. Uh, defeat or catastrophe for for Germany, for Nazi Germany, and it could not be kept as a secret. So Germans knew about that, even at home in in, in, the, uh, in Germany. Um, increasing doubts uh, among Germans came up: soldiers and women at home, and so on and so forth, of the so-called home front. Whether Germany would have a chance to win the war, whether the Nazi propaganda on the final victory. Uh, would uh, make any sense and so on. So uh, doubts uh, spread um, about the, about whether Germany could win the war. Okay, uh, occasionally there were still illusions that, for instance, that the Germans would, uh, the, the, the Hitler government would uh, develop and introduce any miraculous weapons uh, uh, 
But that is not really what made uh, Germans uh, keep fighting, and that is a, a surprising thing. Other Germans, hmm. and including soldiers, fighting at the Eastern Front with catastrophic uh, results. You know, they entire units, divisions were were killed within one day or so. I mean, hmm. you would expect that the soldiers at that time would run away um, and give up fighting and so on, uh, but they didn't. In part, they didn't because uh, they would have been court-martialed then, and, uh, but that does not explain the entire thing. If you look into uh, their mindsets, as we can recover it or you know, explore it based on, on private letters and so on, then you see that they actually were convinced of what they were doing. They, 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 they wanted to fight. <laughs> they didn't do it only uh, because otherwise they would have been court-martialed and, um, and uh, sentenced to death or something. Uh, they were convinced that they, they still were doing a good job, and they were convinced of that good job still in early 1945. Then, uh, in spring 1945, it was so obvious that Germany would lose the war that, that you know, then, then mm-hmm. things uh, really, there is a different uh, period then, but until late 1944, early 1945, uh, the soldiers did not lose their fighting power. The fighting, what? Soldiers called fighting morale. Mm-hmm. The fighting power was not lost. Uh, that surprised already the enemies of Germany, the Americans. They, they couldn't understand mm-hmm. why would the Germans, I mean, completely irrational, why would they do that? They could save millions of lives by giving in, yeah? by capitulating, but they didn't. And they did not because they were afraid, the soldiers in particular, and the, 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 the Kinships at home, they were afraid of what the world, especially the Soviets, also the Jews, not only the Soviet Union, but also America, would do with them to take revenge of the mass crimes the Germans had committed in the Soviet Union and against mm-hmm. the Jews in particular. They were, I mean, that is something you can see on a large scale basis in these letters and so on. They were utterly afraid of um, <clears throat> being victimized by. The victors, uh, the Americans, the Soviets in particular, mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they thought, uh, you know, any chance for us to survive is lost anyway, uh, so uh, we can just keep on fighting. That is what mm-hmm. made the Germans fight, the pangs of conscience, uh, the, the knowledge that they as a nation, not just as individuals, but as a nation, had uh, committed the worst crime the worst crimes in the history of uh, humanity. It's a fascinating book, and I just want to make an aside to the listeners to say that this discussion has been at a relatively high kind of theoretical or national level, but but what's most interesting, at least to me as I read the book, is the the wealth of examples and, and personal stories that Thomas is, Thomas uses to to support these broader claims. And I, I highly recommend that, that you go out and, and read it. It's a really great book. But Thomas, we've taken a lot of your time. I know some of the listeners are going to be go- interested in going further. So I, I, I always give guests a chance to recommend a book or two that they might point listeners to. What would you say? Well, what I can say is... Um if you want to study Nazi Germany and the Holocaust or the third traitors, then you would find quite a lot of not-so-good books, but there's also 
there is uh, there are also many extremely good books I have this mm -hmm. extremely good books they're insightful and you know this is a part of a, it's a research stream that has developed and progressed over decades it's a very far advanced stream I have to say if you I would like to recommend at least two and I could recommend more if you mm -hmm. want to read a personal testimony or uh, if you want to 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 read a very depressing document <laughs> well, that tells you quite a lot about the sentiments of Germans of their time, the feelings and so on. Then there is an, uh, a sort of autobiography of an ordinary German soldier that is, uh, was published initially in Germany and then in, uh, translated into English. It can buy it as an English book. It's uh, not too expensive. It is the author is Walter Reese, R-E-S-E-E, -E -E, Stranger of Myself. That is a 200 or so page uh, book that um, uh, is a personal testimony uh, which this soldier uh, named Riese uh, wrote down in early 1944 before he was killed in action. Okay, Before he was killed in action. He didn't survive the war. Um, and what he recounts in this um, memoir is his Horrible life as a German soldier. Hmm. First, that the Nazis drafted him, which he would not—he would not have become a soldier otherwise. He was a sensible person, and so on. Would, would have preferred to pursue a civil career, civilian uh, dealer, book dealer, or something like that. <clears throat> um, uh, what the Nazis did to him and to his uh, self, his uh, individuality. But then also the book uh, makes. In a as I said, in a very depressing but also enlightening way, clear how he got involved into these mass crimes. Hmm. Probably he may not, the book does not reveal whether he actually himself uh, shot civilians or murdered civilians, but he knew, and that is what, why the book is so amazing, he knew that he was part of this murder machine. And he, he, he reflects on that and thinks about it and writes about it. So that's hmm. Very, very uh, impressive document. That is uh, one book that I uh, like to recommend. Um, and another book that is a more scholarly, a little more scholarly, or it is a scholarly book, uh, that draws a much broader horizon. Uh, it is the author is Mark Mazarow. Mark Mazarow is a history professor at Columbia University, and he has published, um, and it's also extremely, in a different way, completely different way, impressive book, Hitler's Empire. Mm -hmm. That, uh, unlike my own book, which looks, you know, closely to Germany, Mother's book uh, covers the entire uh, European continent and explores and shows how the Nazis ruled over Europe. And he shows how they did so in very different ways. It's not you know, one type of, of um, terror they apply to all countries equally. Mother makes this very strong case and exploring these different shades of, um, of um, the ruling over Europe. Um, but what guides his narrative is a similar idea as mine is that the Nazis... Uh, applied uh, um, perpetrated violence and terror and so on, not only for destructive purposes, but they did so to establish a new order, 
that actually it was already called in the Hitler time, New Order, Hitler's New Order, uh, the rule over Europe. And uh, Mark Mazauer um, shows impressively how uh, this collective identity and this new order was about to be established already during the Nazi um, rulership. Hmm. That is a very, it is, it is uh, I think it is written in a way that certainly non-academics can understand it. It's not an easy read, but it is uh, written in a popular way. And Mark Mazauer uh, commands a, a, a huge, I mean, impressive knowledge on uh, what he's writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been impressed with Mazauer's Dark Continent, which I tell my students isn't something you can read as the first book you read on Europe in the 20th yeah. century, but it should maybe be your second or third. Um, but we've taken a lot of your time, as I said. So, so I'll just ask you this one last question. What are you working on now? I work on two projects. <clears throat> one is a continuation of my uh, studies of Holocaust perpetrators. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, working on a project that would um, eventually uh, would uh, compare uh, perpetrators of genocides, of different genocides. The Holocaust hmm. is one part of it, then uh, Rwanda and um, Bosnia. And I try to <coughs> develop to, to, you know, to, to further pursue these uh, inquiries into what made the perpetrators do what they did. That is still a very fascinating question. Mm-hmm. Also a, mm-hmm. a disturbing question, of course, for me, but that is what I, that is what drives my research. Perpetrators in a comparative uh, um, perspective. And then I, I am pursuing a different, uh, completely different project, which I have mm-hmm. started as a contrast to my dealing with perpetrators. I mean, dealing with these perpetrators the way I do it, that comes with a certain type of empathy, not sympathy, of course. Mm-hmm. Some colleagues call it cold empathy to, to express that, you know, you can't just uh, sympathize with them or empathy. Empathy with perpetrators is a, is a difficult thing, but I mean, it, you need it to understand, if you want to understand what made these, these guys do what they did. Yeah, it needs a certain type of empathy, mm-hmm. uh, which I have um, tried to work with also in my book, Belonging to Genocide. But I have to say, doing this as a scholar, as a normal person, you know, <laughs> there are moments when you get depressed of it. Yeah. And that is why I decided that I want to do something different, uh, to have a, as, a, as a place where I resort to escape once in a while. That it's a project that deals with beauty and body aesthetics. And how body aesthetics, people's ideas about body aesthetics and how they practiced it and what they found beautiful and so on and so forth in physical beauty, how that has changed over the last 200 years. That is what I'm, what I'm enjoying right now, apart from the perpetrator studies. Well, you are a busy man. But I want to say thank you again so much for being with us, and I hope that... Uh when you finish your next study, you'll join us again. And, uh, and I know the listeners appreciate it. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Kelly. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And um, I would be delighted if the uh, audience would um, um, profit from our interview as we still did. Excellent. So thank you very much. Take care. 
You've been listening to an interview with Tomas Kuna about his book, Belonging in Genocide, Hitler's Community, 1918-1945. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I talk with Bob Donier about his fascinating new biography of Radovan Karadzic. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.